3: Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at Bluenile.com. That's Bluenile.com.
4: Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia. Hello my pretties and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's Spectacular Month of Ghoulishly Engaging Content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under all the beds and continue if you dare. In this the penultimate episode of Agoraphobia 2017, we feature a coven of witch tales. In our first segment, Benjamin Jacobs, host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation, discusses Martin Luther's advice to posterity on how best to root out witchcraft through rather
0: scatological strategies. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs. I am, usually, the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. But today, thanks to agoraphobia, I am here to discuss Martin Luther and the witch trials of the early modern period.
1: Ooh.
0: I'd like to begin today with a quote from Stephen Osmond's book, The Serpent and the Lamb. Chronic luther and the making of the reformation and uh just before i do give the quote while my show is usually rated clean in honor of agoraphobia there's some coarse language here quote for the brave at heart luther also recommended profane language and gestures against the devil who being a quote proud beast end quote can be readily driven away by insult for starters the moment he tempts you quote fart in his face end quote and if his quote milk thieves and unquote which is milk Diven, the devil's indentured witches, if the milk-diven turn up at one's house and hex the butter churn so that they may steal the milk and make butter for themselves, one must immediately, quote, drop one's pants and crap in the churn, end quote. Luther, of course, is widely renowned as the founder of the Protestant Reformation, and in that regard is widely viewed as something of a saint-like figure in some circles. In fact, October this year marks the 500th anniversary of his famous nailing of his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. And, of course, there are massive festivities to mark this in said city. And yet here we have him talking about defecating in a butter churn, and he has a special word for witches, specifically who steal milk. What is going on? To answer this question and more, we're going to have to look at the history of witchcraft in the early modern period. The issue of witchcraft in the Middle Ages is one of great interest to many, both in academia and in the general public, due to the intensity of the narratives involved, which seem to offer something for people of any interest. For those with an interest in the occult, of course, this is a prime topic of horror, while for those interested in social or political history, this is a key, well-documented example of the victimization of marginal populations. For those with a more general interest, the narrative of persecution has become general in the zeitgeist of the West, due to a variety of plays, movies, and books on the subject of witch trials. What is often less well known is that the famous witch trials in the United States were far from the high point of the phenomenon, and indeed represented some of the last and least bloody entries in the annals of the subject. In fact, the peak of witch hunting activity occurred in the chaotic period following the Protestant Reformation in the Holy Roman Empire, much of which is in modern Germany, during the period from 1580 to 1630. It's probably not coincidental that during this peak the majority of the Thirty Years' War took place, during which time up to a third of the population of Germany perished due to starvation, disease, battlefield violence, military reprisals, and religious persecution. This conflict was between the Protestant Princes of Germany and their various Catholic allies, which included the Pope, and then the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor and his Protestant allies. This war was one of the first where the printing press was deployed for propaganda purposes. Both sides, Catholic and Protestant, tried to present their cause as one in which their belligerency was justified by the righteousness of their religion, in opposition to the polluted faith of their opponents. The resulting large volume of printed books, pamphlets, broadsheets, and posters were targeted at the increasingly powerful and literate middle and lower classes of Europe. As the war demanded never-before-seen levels of taxation, requisition, supplies, and the conscription of men to serve in the massively expanded infantry armies of the day, the loyalty of the populace was more important than ever. This context makes engaging with the reality of witch trials exceedingly difficult. Suffice it to say that the Protestant printers did a very good job of portraying the Catholic authorities as bloodthirsty burners of heretics, a portrayal that has lasted, and which has come to color the popular view of the Catholic authorities of the Middle Ages. Since the Catholics were so happy to burn Protestants, by extension it is often assumed that they were also behind the burning of witches, and that this practice was common throughout the entire Middle Ages before there was a Protestant alternative to this Catholic brutality. The reality is that witch hunts were almost unheard of before 1400, that Catholics and Protestants were equally adept at burning witches, and that Protestants engaged in some pretty nasty anti-Catholic persecution themselves. Unpacking all of this is far too large a topic for this 10-minute segment, but let us focus on the place of witchcraft before 1400 in European society, and then get to the main topic for today, Martin Luther and his fondness for defecating and butter churns. To begin with, The people of the Middle Ages did not differentiate between the natural and the supernatural. Witches, magic, science, and religion were all part of the same worldview. In the absence of the critical tools of modern science, which are as much intellectual as they are physical, there was little if any separation between the supernatural and the natural as we think of it today. In the absence of any method to prove it, me saying that the rye crop died because of a fungal infestation is as legitimate as the guy next to me saying that it was angry spirits. To be sure... There were people who did try to focus on finding more rational explanations for a phenomenon, but such individuals were also very few in number in an age when literacy was a trait limited to the wealthy. For even the most educated, therefore, it was often very difficult to differentiate between a tall tale and a natural phenomenon. And for the lower classes, who rarely had access to education or even any people with education, the traditional practices of Europe's pagan past continued into the Christian Middle Ages. The exact forms of what was and was not continued and why is a topic beyond the scope of this short segment, but suffice it to say that while the rationale of the rituals often changed from placating pagan spirits to placating Christian ones, the forms of the ritual often remained recognizably similar. If you wanted to ensure a good harvest, you would hire someone, be it a wise woman, a village elder, or a local priest, they would come say some mumbo-jumbo, perform some ritual that may or may not have had some actual effect, and you were all set. Some of these practices had merit, and some were pure gobbledygook. But the important thing was that the peasant felt somewhat less threatened by a hostile world beyond their comprehension. And to be fair, that is worth something. If I think that there is a one-in-four chance that my rye crop will die no matter what I do, how energetically am I going to plow? My work has a one-in-four chance of being completely wasted. And yet if I don't plow, there's a 100% chance that I won't have any rye to eat. Feeling in control allows a person to go about the daily routine of things that are controllable without suffering under the threat of existential angst. The views of the educated towards these traditional practices ran the gamut from winking acceptance to outright hostility, but it's worth saying that the Catholic Church hierarchy never condoned unorganized mob violence. The Church was always very keen to be seen as rational, and an aid in the organization of a prosperous and stable society. This was basically the mission statement of the church in the Middle Ages. Indeed, for most of the Middle Ages, the official view of the church was that most witches were straight-up charlatans. They were certainly evil, but they were evil because they were taking advantage of the ignorance of simple people to extract money. In fact, belief in the existence of witchcraft was declared to be heretical in 786. Let me repeat that. Believing that witches had any power at all was considered a heresy. Witches were not in league with the devil... They were selling snake oil. As the Middle Ages matured, however, the church expanded its organizational coherence and power, while also facing new and more dangerous threats to its intellectual monopoly. The declaration of the First Crusade by Pope Urban in 1097 set a new tone, whereby violence against those with differing beliefs was directly condoned. Shortly afterwards, the crusade against the heretical Cathars began, a conflict which resulted in the establishment of the Inquisition and the first burning of heretics. Between these disorders and the rise of a more mystical version of Christianity during the years surrounding the Black Death, the church came to change its stance on witchcraft. Now the world was seen to be inhabited by a variety of demons who could capture a person and force them to be evil. If persuasion ended up being unable to drive off the demon, force was necessary to save the soul of the individual and the community at large. And so, in 1326, witchcraft was added to the list of heresies which the Inquisition could pursue. Manuals for the Inquisitors were produced, and witch trials began thereafter. These were, however, very, very limited in scale before 1400, uh, with only one or two victims at a time. Large-scale trials really began in 1420, consuming dozens of victims over the course of a decade or more, but remained a very localized phenomenon in areas where the Inquisition was already active in pursuit of other heretics. In the years before 1420 and 1580, these events became gradually more frequent and more intense. From 1580 to 1630, there were often numerous outbreaks of hysteria occurring simultaneously around Europe. They were not limited to Germany, but in Germany... They were the most intense and the most widespread. They began to taper off after 1630. In 1635, the head of the Inquisition admitted that most of the witch trials had been in some way illegal and had not conformed to the proper legal procedures outlined in canon law. As governments became more centralized, these local hysterias were less able to take root, and by the 1690s, trials were either very individual cases or were limited to fringe areas like the North American colonies of England. The role of Martin Luther in all this has been hotly debated. The fact that the peak of witch-hunting activity occurred after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation is telling, but then it also did not begin until after his death. Luther himself has not been linked to the execution of any witches, and the only report he gave in his voluminous writings of a personal interaction with a witch involved him using persuasion to bring the man back into the fold. Luther was, in general, of the view that persuasion was the proper role of the religious establishment, and he was very critical of crusades, even against Muslims. He was also a man of the German Renaissance, and strove most of his life to find a way to unify the... Humanism of the new way of thinking, with the spiritual and mystical enlightenment which he found in his reformed dogma. On the other hand, Luther wrote on several occasions very forcefully about the reality of witches, and his hatred for them. In his most famous passage on the topic, Luther blamed a witch for the death of one of his brothers, and said that witches should be shown no mercy. It seems hard to reconcile Martin Luther, the humanist, with Martin Luther, the witch-hater, but this is a modern perspective. And I should say that there is at least one piece of context to add before we can fully understand Luther's views on witches. And it brings us back to printing. As with all new industries, the early years of the printing industry saw massive bursts of creativity and output, combined with an equally massive instability in the financial basis of the industry. Printers did not know what would sell, how to manage risk, and had not built up the financial capital to cushion the impact of failures. The response of most printers was simply to print as much as possible and hope that something would sell. There was a proliferation of broadsheets, which were literally just single pieces of paper of printed text, which were just sold sheet by sheet in the marketplaces very cheaply. Printers quickly found that works that played on people's emotions or dealt with sensational topics sold well, and so there was a focus on that kind of material, just to keep things afloat. Simultaneously, authorities did not know how to regulate printing. They were unused to dealing with such a rapidly paced thing, and the printers just sort of popped up left and right. This context does a lot to explain the rapid spread of Protestantism itself, as there was nothing more sensational than an attack on the intellectual basis of the entirety of the European order. But it should be said that printing predated Luther, and it had been sensational well before the 95 Theses. Before Protestantism emerged to dominate the headlines, printers focused on other sensational tales, including the republishing of tall tales and rumors. Of course, such stories included stories about the depredations of witches, The most popular and notorious books on the subject of witch-hunting were published soon after the advent of the printing press in 1440, and the proliferation of stories on the topic fed a growing hysteria. By the time of Martin Luther's birth in 1483, the belief in witches' powers was common knowledge, and the institutional process for conducting trials had been created. Luther, a strong believer in the new learning of the Renaissance, was a critical reader, but an avid reader. He was keen to pursue the reading of material that was not necessarily within the normal constraints of the old order, and there was nothing inherent in the stories of witchcraft which contradicted his worldview. Okay, so we understand a bit about why Luther believed in witches, but why was he advocating defecating in butter churns? Well, one of the most common beliefs in witches was that they would inhabit people's butter churns and steal the butter as it formed. There's actually a realistic basis for this belief. It turns out that to form butter, you need to agitate the milk so strongly that the membranes between the fat droplets in the milk break, allowing the fat to come together and condense out of the milk as butter. As with many micro changes of this type, the process is much easier if the milk is warm. We now understand this process very well, and our industrial-scale butteries do a very good job at keeping milk in the right conditions to produce butter quickly and in a sanitary fashion. But in the Middle Ages, all they knew was that if you put milk in a thing and you mix it around for a long time with another thing, eventually butter happens. Sometimes it happened very fast, and sometimes it would just not ever happen. The link between the temperature and the ease of the formation of butter would not have been obvious at a time when temperature control was very, very difficult. The obvious conclusion, if you're trying to make butter and it's just not happening is that something supernatural must be involved because you have no other rational explanation. So if you're a person in the Middle Ages and you have a witch stealing your butter, how do you stop it? Well, you do things to drive the witch away. Luther's remedy was based on the idea of insulting the witch away with human excrement. One wonders what his wife thought of his remedy. More tragically, if this was the remedy tried by his parents to drive off their their butter witch, the death of his brother might be easier to attribute to insanitary butter than to the supernatural. Luther himself lost several children, though of course it's impossible to link this to contaminated butter. We don't even have real proof that he did in fact defecate in the churn beyond his own say-so, which might have just been rhetorical flair for all we know. Other folk remedies for butter witches were likely more benign. Blessings from priests and the use of herbs were common. But the most popular remedy in the records, as is often the case, actually does have a basis in reality recognizable to a modern reader. In this remedy, the person whose butter is being stolen would heat up a horseshoe or another metal object until it was red hot, then they would plunge it into the butter. The hissing and bubbling of the milk scalding on the hot iron was supposed to be the sound of the witch being killed. Of course, from our perspective, tossing a red hot iron into cold milk will raise the temperature of the milk which will make it much easier to rupture the membranes around the fat droplets and form butter. I would love to end on such an uplifting coda, but this is, after all, agoraphobia. The reality is that Martin Luther's writings on witches had a life far beyond that of their author. While Martin Luther himself never burned a witch, his reputation amongst his followers meant that all his writings became sources of ethical guidance, even his personal correspondences and the transcriptions of his drinking parties. These documents, and the opinions he expressed directly to his inner circle, gave support for the burning of witches. Protestant areas were just as guilty as Catholic areas of this hysteria, and Luther's writings were directly cited to support this activity. As Germany was racked with famine, plague, and violence, those who were cut off from the support of family were particularly vulnerable. Widows, orphans, the elderly, the poor, or those who were simply unpopular often had no one to speak up on their behalf. By the height of the trials, as many as four out of every five convicted witches was a woman, with the men often being relatives of the accused women. These spasms of hysteria may have killed as many as 60,000 people in particularly horrible ways. There are many lessons that can be drawn from the story of the witch trials, Indeed, as many as the different motives that cause a person to look into them in the first place. For myself, the role of the printing press in the story is particularly intriguing. The uncontrolled and irresponsible printing of fiction as fact, playing on popular fears of those outside the mainstream of society, seems like a lesson worth pondering. The fact that Luther, a man with multiple doctorate degrees and possessed of a powerful mind, was amongst those duped by this outpouring of publication is certainly something that I find...
1: Dare I say, scary? Good evening, everyone. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
2: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Everyone?
4: We close today with a story from the Renaissance English History Podcast's Heather Tesco, which shows that even a simple stroll in a familiar place can morph into an unexpected journey when your eyes are open to the history that surrounds you, especially when it reaches out from beyond and offers you tea.
3: I want to tell you about a time when I was out hiking in Yorkshire. Now, if you know me from listening to Me on the Renaissance English History Podcast, you know that I love hiking along the coast near Scarborough and Whitby, but on this occasion, I was actually headed up past Harrogate to a little village called Naresborough. It was a cold day. It already seemed really wintry considering it was only October. I left the station and I walked down to the 14th century castle where I poked around in the ruins for nearly an hour. I didn't notice that the sky was starting to turn an ominous shade of gray, even more gray than Yorkshire in October usually is, which is saying something. I headed back up towards the town and crossed the River Nid when the sky opened up and it started pouring. I ran across the bridge looking for shelter and I couldn't find anything and that is when I saw a light in the cave. It was surrounded by trees and forest and the cave itself was very dark, but that light shone almost supernaturally. I had to go and check it out. Anyway, it was still pouring. I was soaking wet and I figured that it would provide shelter if nothing else. So I stepped inside the empty cave and I looked for the light, which was still shining from the back. I wasn't the least bit afraid though. And looking back on it, I suppose I should have been. I just felt this serene sense of calm and peace. Like I was being led as I walked back towards the light, which by now was clearly a fire with flames dancing. I could make out the silhouette of an old woman leaning over a kettle every part of her looked like the traditional picture of witches that I had seen in storybooks growing up. She had a crooked back, a crooked nose, warts, all of it. My brain wanted to run, but my feet were firmly planted on the ground. The woman looked up and made eye contact with me and it sent a shiver down my spine. Hello there, Heather, she said. What? How did she know my name? I looked around thinking for a moment that there might be another Heather in the cave, but there was just me. Put your bag down and come and get warm by the fire, she said, trying to smile, but sort of looking slightly sinister in the process. I put down my bag, and as I started walking towards the fire and towards her enchanting eyes staring at me, I wondered what on earth I was doing. She scooped a mug into the kettle and then handed it to me. The liquid inside smelled good, almost like licorice and peppermint. Drink it, it will calm you, and sit down, she said. And so I sat on a rock and put the mug to my mouth and I drank. You want to know who I am? She asked, and I nodded. I am Mother Shipton, and you are in my cave. Mother Shipton? I had heard of this very famous Yorkshire witch. I hadn't liked what I'd heard. I heard that she turned children into stone in her famous well because she couldn't have any children of her own. I must have looked scared because then she smiled. Oh, don't be so afraid, she said. I'm not going to hurt you. And she leaned over and put her hand on my forehead. It was actually kind of soothing and comforting, and it made me feel like I was home. She handed me a warm woolen blanket, and as I started to dry off and warm up there in the fire, she told me her story. How her mother had been a young girl shunned by her village when she fell pregnant, and she wouldn't say who the father was. She had found shelter in this cave, and she gave birth to mother Shipton all by herself. And mother Shipton's real name was Ursula and her mother, Agatha, had scrounged around looking for berries and anything to support them for a couple of years before a local abbot took pity on them and placed Ursula with a family. Her mother, Agatha, went to a nunnery, and the two never saw each other again. Ursula looked wistful and sad at the thought of her poor unmarried mother banished because she got pregnant. I was quite intelligent, she said, but I'm very ugly, as you can see, and so I was teased. The children were horrible to me. She smiled suddenly, but I got my revenge. I played pranks. I did things I shouldn't have done in secret, and they started saying I was a witch because they couldn't understand it. I looked over at her and her eyes danced. Not only was I smart, but I could also tell the future, she said. Even King Henry himself asked me for advice on his marital issues. Cardinal Wolsey said he would burn me, but he never did. I told him he wouldn't ever get inside York, and he didn't. She smiled again. Never underestimate the power of a woman. She said, we have a power that men don't understand and it makes them fearful of us, but when we can use it and control it, why then there's no stopping us. I wanted to ask her if that was true, why she was still living in a cave, but I decided to hold my tongue. You know, I predicted the internet. She said, and this cave is England's oldest tourist attraction. People have been coming to my cave to my well for nearly 400 years. Did you ever get married and have children of your own? I asked. She looked sad. I married Tobias. He was a good man. But he died. People died a lot then. I came back to this cave, and I felt my mother was with me, even though she had died by that point too. I found out later. I kept hoping she would come back and get me, she said. Life was hard, but I found joy in being able to help people with the herbs that I grew in the forest. She nodded towards my mug of licorice and mint tea. And eventually, most of the people became kind to me. They knew I was smart and that I would listen and try to help them with their problems. And they even protected me. As Mother Shipton talked, I grew sleepy and my eyes closed in front of the fire. The cave was surprisingly unstuffy given the lack of ventilation, and I could hear the rain outside and felt very warm and safe with Mother Shipton talking. She told me about her life, about all the people she met, the people who came to her cave to ask her for advice, and how she lived until she was in her seventies. I thought a lot about how women were so vulnerable then, how your place in your community was everything. And if you didn't have that place, you couldn't easily go and create one. Instead, you just had to deal with having a hard life. I must have drifted off to sleep with Mother Shipton talking to me and singing. And when I woke up, it was morning. The storm had passed and the birds were chirping and I was alone, still laying in a really uncomfortable position on that rock. There was no woolen blanket, though I still was actually quite warm. There was no fire, no kettle, nothing that would have given any hint that there was a woman here last night. The only thing was the smell of mint in the air, and this taste of licorice that was still in my mouth. I'm not actually sure what happened that night, and I walked back to the station feeling very confused. I'm still confused, even all these years on. But even with that confusion, I carry part of Mother Shipton and That Night with me. You can hear more about witches, ghosts, and other spooky encounters with headless Tudor women at englandcast.com, where I've added several of my Halloween episodes from years past.
4: A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads, but those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia.